Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. Volume 3 Chapter 4 The Scientists Vanish The Hotel Elliston was a small apartment hotel on G Street, a few blocks from the United States Department of State. Rick and Scotty wondered why Ames had chosen it for a rendezvous. Then he decided it was probably because it was so inconspicuous. It was neither shabby nor fancy, but something halfway in between. Rick was seated in the room's only armchair, putting a precise crease in the crown of a new gray felt hat. He was very self-conscious about the hat, since it was the first one he had ever owned. Up until now, he had resisted wearing a hat of any kind, compromising on a battered cap in bad weather. Go easy on that new sky piece. Scotty said. You wear it out. He was sprawled on one of the twin beds reading a copy of the Washington Post. Rick held up the hat and examined the crease critically. Not bad. It makes me look distinguished, don't you think? He put it on and adjusted it at a slight angle. Extinguished is the word. Whatever made Barbie decide to buy you a hat is beyond me, unless she was afraid the Washington sun would make you crazier than usual. Rick's sister had gotten the hat as a going-away present. He couldn't be sure, but he thought the hat had been inspired by her seeing one of her favorite movie stars wearing one just like it. It felt funny to be wearing the hat. Rick stood up and adjusted his brown gabardine suit and straightened his tie and admired the effect in the mirror. "'No, you look like—' Scotty exclaimed suddenly. "'You look just like your dad. The hat makes you look older, and it covers up your hair.' No kidding. I wouldn't be able to tell you apart at a hundred yards. Great, Rick said. He took off the hat and tossed it on the bureau. I get a new hat and you tell me it makes me look like my own father. Secretly, though, he was flattered. He could do a whole lot worse than looking like Hearts and Brandt. Scotty folded the newspaper with meticulous care and then heaved the neat roll into the wastebasket. I'm sick of waiting. What do you suppose happened to Steve Ames? Think he's forgotten all about us? Not a chance, Rick frowned. But I am getting worried. Must be something serious to keep him away this long. Steve Ames had specified Friday as their arrival date. Friday had come and gone without a word from him. So had Saturday and Sunday. It was now Monday noon, and there had been no sign of Ames or anybody else who seemed interested in them. I'm hungry, Scotty said. I've been hungry for two days, Rick told him. Wish we could go out and get a good meal. The food here is terrible. They had been afraid to leave the vicinity of the hotel without permission from Ames, and there were no other restaurants for several blocks. They had taken turns going down to the drugstore in the corner and returning with sandwiches and milkshakes. Rick was worried. He couldn't imagine anything that would keep Ames from contacting them, 
unless some mysterious enemy had caught up with him. But there had been no evidence of an enemy. The scientists could very well have been asked to help on some mysterious research problem that didn't involve anyone but government personnel. I just don't understand, though. Where does that air pistol fit into any of this? Rick wondered aloud. Scotty grunted. Never mind the pistol. Where do we fit into this? There's something else. We're supposed to be assistants to Weiss and Zircon. Where are they? Some other hotel? Rick guessed. For all we know, they might be in this one. Not a chance. We'd have heard Zircon bellowing like a wounded bull at being kept waiting for so long. Scotty sat up. Let's get another couple of sandwiches. Rick's stomach turned over at the thought. Sandwiches? Don't flatter those padded slabs of blotting paper. I don't know whether I can eat another one or not. All right, how about a milkshake? Rick sighed. I suppose we have to eat something. Well, it's your turn to go to the store. I'll go down and wait for you on the steps. I need air. They locked the room door behind them and went down the hall to the ancient elevator. It was the type that passengers operate by pushing buttons. Get in, Scotty said. I'll pilot this trip. You have more flying hours in this box than you do in the cub, Rick jibed. Scotty pushed the button for the lobby and the elevator shuddered into action. Two miles an hour, straight down, jet propelled, he said. Well, it's better than walking, but not much better. Scotty swung the door open as they reached the lobby. Main floor. The entrance to the drugstore counter is right up the street. Tomaine Willie will serve you used sponges, library paste, and other delicacies. Bring your own indigestion pills, Rick added. They crossed the lobby and went through the front door, pausing on the steps. I'll wait here. Want to take my order now, waiter? I know it already. Peanut butter sandwich and chocolate milkshake. Me, I'll have cheese with a vanilla shake. I'm a rebel. When it comes to choosing between sawdust, extract, and library paste, it doesn't pay to be different, Rick said. Confucius Brandt, the sage of Spindrift Island. Well, here I go. If they had any bacon, I'd bring it home. But the short order boys can't cope with anything as complex as frying bacon there. Scotty went down the steps and started up the street toward the drugstore. As he passed the taxi stand next to the hotel, the door of a yellow cab flew open and the driver jumped out to face him. Rick started down the steps in fright at the sudden move, then stopped short. The driver and Scotty were shaking hands, grinning from ear to ear. Sarge, the driver exclaimed. I wasn't sure it was you. Boy, you don't look like the same character I watched them carry away on, Oki. That's because my face is clean, Scotty answered. Gizmo, swell to see you. Wondered a million times where you were and how you were making out. Not bad, the driver said. How is it with you? Couldn't be better, Scotty said. He beckoned to Rick. Gizmo, meet Rick Brandt. We've been buddies ever since I got paid off. Rick, this character is Gizmo McLean, the worst shot in the Marine Corps. Gizmo was short and stocky with a thatch of dark hair. He wasn't very old, perhaps 21 or 22. He had the kind of grin that made you want to grin back. He and Rick shook hands. I wasn't even sure the Sarge was still kicking around, Gizmo said. Last I saw of him, the corpsmen were lugging him away on a stretcher. That was Okinawa. 
And the last time I saw Gizmo, Scotty added, he was firing a light machine gun with one hand and eating K-rations with the other. What you doing in Washington? Driver asked. You live here? Rick gave Scotty a glance of warning. Just visiting. Look, Giz, give me, give me your address, will you? Just as soon as I can, I'll lick you up. I can't stop to talk right now. Gizmo wrote down his address and phone number and notebook and tore out the page and handed it to Scotty. If you're staying at this hotel, I'll be seeing you often. This is my regular stand. Don't let me keep you, Sarge. You were going somewhere, weren't you? Yeah, after food. See you later, Gizmo. See you later, chowhound. Gizmo called after Scotty's departing figure. He turned to Rick. Greatest guy in the world. Rick nodded. I think so, too. I can tell you a hundred stories about him. Some of them you wouldn't believe. I remember once, this was on Tarawa. He scared me silly. We were flat on our faces in the sand, and a Jap-Nambu gun was pecking away at us, and I could feel the slug fanning across the seat of my pants like bees. And... Taxi! Gizmo stopped short and ran for the door of his cab. See you later he called, and then opened the door for a man who was waiting impatiently. Rick grinned and took a seat on the hotel steps. He liked Gizmo McLean, but he wasn't sure meeting him right in front of the hotel was good. If the ex-Marine started asking questions that Scotty couldn't answer, it might be embarrassing. He wondered what the name Gizmo meant. But he had spent most of his time wondering these past few weeks, and it was getting to the point where he couldn't be sure of anything anymore. The hotel porter came out with a dustpan and broom and started sweeping the steps. Rick got out of his way and stood watching him for a moment. Then he asked, Is this really Washington, D.C.? The porter stared and then grinned. See, between the cracks there, I mean, between those two buildings? He pointed across the street. Partially visible through the narrow opening was the tall shaft of the Washington Monument. Oh, that, Rick said. That's an Egyptian obelisk. A little bigger than most, sure, but still an obelisk. How do I know I'm not in Egypt? I don't know, the porter returned. I sure don't know how to convince you. Why don't you try staying out of the sun for a couple of days? The sun'll addle you like milk curdling. Maybe that's my trouble, Rick agreed. He noticed Scotty coming back down the street and went to meet him. Scotty held up two paper bags. Clerk said we should just throw away the contents and eat the bags. They have more flavor. I believe it, Rick said. Where do we eat the stuff? Here in our room. Let's go up. The mice are apt to tear the place down if we don't share food with them. As the creaky elevator took them slowly upward, Rick asked, What kind of a name is Gizmo? Marine talk. Gizmo is anything you can't remember the right name for. Or maybe something you never heard the name of. You could use it as a synonym for gadget. It's a common nickname in the Marines. And what were you doing face down in the sand while slugs were fanning your pants? Scotty chuckled. Sounds like Gizmo's been giving you the word. He has more imagination than Barbie. He produced the room key and opened the door. Anyway, that particular time... He stopped short. Steve Ames was sitting in the broom's only chair reading one of their magazines. Come in. Make yourselves comfortable, Steve invited. Thanks, Rick said with relief. How did you get in here? 
Steve tossed the magazine to the table. Easy enough. Crawled out of the woodwork. His glance switched to Scotty. So you met an old friend of yours, eh? What'd you tell him? Nothing, Scotty said. Only that I was visiting in the city and would look him up whenever I could. George John McLean, otherwise known as Gizmo, Steve recited. Ex-Marine, served with the 2nd Division. He was awarded the Bronze Star for the same action that got you the Silver Star, right? Scotty's jaw was on his chest. Rick swallowed. Steve Ames didn't miss a thing. Right, Scotty scratched his head. How'd you have the time to find all that out? Steve smiled. I'm disappointed to have you ask that. Isn't he driving a cab? Can't I read the number? Isn't there a telephone in this room? And all of that was true, Rick thought. The cab company wouldn't have had all that information. Steve must have called Marine Headquarters after he found out Gizmo's name. It frightened him a little to think how fast the Marines must have checked Gizmo's record. Only someone important could get service like that. We expected you on Friday, Scotty said. I expected to be here. Something came up. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But first, memorize this name and address. Colonel James Blythe, room 121, Connors Building. Got it? Both boys repeated the name and address out loud. Then Rick repeated it to himself several times. Colonel? He wondered if the mystery had anything to do with the Army. You're to go see him within a half an hour. He'll tell you something of what we're working on. Will Weiss and Zircon be there? Rick asked. Steve frowned. Weiss and Zircon were to have arrived here by Pullman early Friday morning. I sent a man to meet them. He came back and reported they weren't on the train. I thought perhaps he had failed to recognize them from the pictures I gave him and went to find out for myself. I wasted half the morning hunting Washington hotels. There isn't a sign of them out there. Maybe they missed their train, Scotty guessed. Rick thought not. Weiss and Zircon didn't miss trains. He felt a tingle of worry. They made the train. I phoned Spindrift. Your father saw them to the station. I checked with the train crew and they knew nothing. The porter remembers that they went to bed just before the train reached New York. He didn't see them after that. I put a crew to work checking all the places the train had stopped on the way down. It took a while, but I found out where they got off. He stared out the window, face thoughtful. They had instructions to come directly to Washington, and they didn't. Now why? What could have caused them to leave the train? Or more importantly, who? Rick stopped breathing. They got off at Baltimore, Steve said. A brakeman saw them. Strange, isn't it? They are certainly distinctive enough in appearance, and almost anyone who saw them would remember them. Yet apparently only a single brakeman saw them. They got off the train at Baltimore, and they left by the wrong side. They opened a door on the opposite side of the platform. The brakeman saw them get down and cross the tracks, and he saw them disappear into the darkness. This was early morning, remember. The last he saw of them, they were climbing up the embankment, a few hundred feet behind the station. Steve paused and finished quietly. That's the last anyone has seen or heard of them. Chapter 6 Yannick 
It was Rick who broke the silence following Steve's last words. And I was thinking a little while ago that maybe there wasn't an enemy to watch out for. Steve glanced up sharply. What makes you think there is? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? You don't know where Weiss and Zircon went. None of your men do. And Dad doesn't. They just vanished. They wouldn't vanish of their own free will. I know them better than that. Yep, Scotty agreed. If they haven't gotten in touch with anybody, it's because they couldn't. The only reason they couldn't phone or write or something would be because they were being held somewhere. My thoughts exactly. Steve rose and picked up his hat. However, I have the advantage in my reasoning. You see, I know we have an enemy. Your father and the scientists are helping us to combat that enemy. It's warfare in the dark, because we haven't the faintest idea of who he or they might be. A question trembled on Rick's lips, but Steve shook his head. That's enough chatter. I'm going back to my office and start over again. There must be some clue. Meanwhile, you two hop into a cab and get over to see the colonel. He expects you. Don't take your friend's cab, Scotty. Walk off to Pennsylvania Avenue and pick up a cruising hack. Safer that way. Steve went out the door, Scotty right on his heels. Rick reached for his new hat and followed. At the elevator, Steve motioned for them to get in. I won't ride down with you. Now for the love of Mike, be careful. Keep your eyes open. I don't want you to show up missing, too. He said it half-jokingly, but Rick sensed that he was deadly serious. As the elevator made its way slowly down, he pondered on the strange disappearance of Weiss and Zircon. What could have lured them from the train, and were they all right? Scotty was thinking along the same lines, because he said, If anyone has hurt Weiss or Zircon, I am gonna... Let's hope they're just being held, Rick said. He crossed his fingers. The scientists were his good friends, and it made him feel funny to think they were in the hands of an unknown enemy. We better step on it, he told Scotty. Out on the street, they hiked rapidly in the direction of Pennsylvania Avenue. A cruising cab passed, and they hailed it. Rick knew the reason behind Steve's suggestion. A cruising taxi was less likely to be a plant than one parked right in front of the hotel. He gave the driver the name of the Connors building, and they settled back in their seats, not talking. It wouldn't do to discuss things in a taxi. The building was in the shadow of the White House, a very unimpressive temporary structure. They went up the steps, looking around curiously. There were no guards. A receptionist smiled and asked their business. Room 121, Rick said. Colonel Blythe, one flight up and turn to your right. Rick gave Scotty a sidewise glance as they hiked up the stairs. There was nothing secret about this place. Anybody could walk in. He began to feel a little let down because he had pictured a stalwart guard, maybe a soldier, who would bar the door while asking their names. They went down the second floor corridor until they found room 121. Rick knocked, and a voice said, Come in. Inside, a girl smiled at them. Yes? We've come to see Colonel James Blythe, Rick said. She nodded toward an inner door. Go right in, Mr. Brandt. He's expecting you. She smiled at Scotty. Mr. Scott, too. Thank you, Rick said a little dazed. How had she known which was which? He was sure he had never seen her before. His respect for this unknown organization skyrocketed. In the inner room, the man in a civilian suit came to meet them. I'm Blythe, he said. 
Come in and sit down. He led the way to his desk and pointed out comfortable chairs. He was about 40 years of age, his hair graying. Even in civilian clothes, Rick thought he could identify him as a soldier. He had straight shoulders, the erect carriage, and the poised assurance of a career army man. You're curious, Blythe said. Naturally. Well, I'm going to answer some of your questions, the non-technical ones. I'm going to send you to the laboratory where you are to work. But what about Weiss and Zircon? Scotty stopped. True, Weiss and Zircon have disappeared. Still, there is work to be done. You can assist someone else until they show up. Now, let's get down to cases. Rick and Scotty sat bolt upright on the edges of their chairs. About two months ago, Blythe began, three men walked into a secret government laboratory in Arizona. They were not stopped, because the lab was well concealed within a private hospital. It was underground, and even the majority of the hospital staff did not know of its presence. It could only be reached through the hospital library by passing by the librarian, who was one of our people. These three men walked in, went down the corridor without molesting anyone, and went into the library. It happened that two of the staff physicians were in there, as well as the librarian. One of the men carried what at first glance appeared to be a box camera. He held it before him as if he was going to take a picture and click the shutter. The colonel paused to light a cigarette while Rick fidgeted. It was not a camera. The librarian and the doctors had a high, shrill, whispering sound. Then they collapsed, writhing on the floor. They felt no pain. They did not lose consciousness. But when they tried to move, they could not. They had no control of their muscles. They were completely paralyzed. A memory flashed into Rick's mind. Dismal. The men walked to the library desk, reached underneath, and correctly pressed the combination of buttons that opened the secret door to the lab, a hinged bookcase. They then went into the lab and used their weapon to knock down those at work there, helping themselves to the lab records and several specimens, and walked out again, entirely without resistance or trouble from anyone. Colonel Blythe was very grave. I can't tell you the nature of the records or the specimens, but I can assure you they knew exactly what they were looking for. An inside job, Scotty guessed. Yes, the person who tipped them off was discovered and is now in prison. He knows nothing, except that he was paid for the information. The girl from the outer office interrupted. She carried a tube of white paste, a fingerprint outfit, and two white cards. Rick and Scotty submitted a fingerprinting, but of a very unusual kind. She wanted only their thumb imprints, and she took them in white on a white card. That's pretty strange, Scotty muttered. Not very, Nobly smiled. You'll see, but to go on. A month ago, three men, presumably the same ones, walked into an office in Washington, in a building nearby. It was the same story. Only a fortunate accident kept them from helping themselves to top-secret material. The officer in charge of the security vault was delayed by a traffic accident, and the vault was not opened. They had no means of opening it. Oh, yes, there was one odd thing. Under the effects of this box weapon of theirs, a clerk's hearing aid exploded. He looked at Rick. Does that mean anything at all to you? It wouldn't have, sir, Rick said except for what happened to my dog. Colonel Blythe smiled. 
How is Dismal? Back to normal, I hope. I'm very fond of dogs. I have three, as a matter of fact. He became serious again. I won't insult your intelligence by telling you what a weapon of this kind means. We were forced to go outside the service for aid. Naturally, we went to the best authorities. They happened to be the Spindrift scientists. We knew you were working in ultrasonic because your father, Rick, supplied the Central Scientific Authority here with complete details of the sonoscope he developed for use under the sea at Quangara. The colonel rose. That is all. You can see why the utmost secrecy is essential, if we are to prevent panic. We can fight this thing as long as it is underground. Once all the facts are known, the confusion, the newspaper reports, and the furor it would create would only help the criminals to cover their trail more effectively. He reached for his phone and said cryptically, Ten. In a moment, a voice buzzed in the receiver. Yes? This is Yarnig, Bly said. I'm sending them over to you. They'll arrive in ten minutes. He replaced the phone and addressed Rick and Scotty. On K Street, just two blocks up, you'll find a drugstore. Go into the door to the right of the drugstore and go upstairs. And that's all. Thank you for coming. He shook hands and ushered the boys out, so smoothly that there was no time for questions. In the other room, the girl waited. You'll need these, she said, and handed each of them a brown oblong card of what looked like leather. In the hall, Rick and Scotty examined them. On one side was their picture with their full names and a serial number. At right above their names, letters were imprinted. J-A-N-I-G. Yannick. On the other side were two thumbprints embossed into the material. Well, I'm beat, Scott exclaimed. Same here. Rick looked at the likeness of himself. You know when they took these? While we were walking up the stairs. There was a hidden camera at the landing somewhere. And what is this stuff? Looks like leather, Scotty said, flexing his. But I think it's some kind of plastic. Rick held his up to the light and agreed. It was a thin, very flexible plastic that could be easily rolled or folded up into a tiny square. Colonel Blythe's secretary came through the door and saw them examining the cards. She smiled. They're edible, too. If you swallow them, they'll dissolve. She went down the corridor and went into another office. Rick felt as though butterflies had taken refuge in his stomach. This thing was big. Look at the way the organization functioned. Steve had picked up a phone and presto, full information on Gizmo McLean. They had been with Colonel Blythe ten minutes, and on the way out they received these? Yannig, Scotty said aloud. What is that? Don't talk anymore. Let's get out of here, Rick cautioned. They went down the stairs, past the receptionist, and out into the street. Not until he was sure no one could overhear him did Rick speak. Scotty, I'm scared. Same here. This is big. You're telling me, listen, Rick, with a weapon like that, nothing is close to those people. They could walk right into the most secret places in the country. They could hike casually to Oak Ridge itself and maybe walk off with an atomic bomb. And they have Zircon and Weiss, Rick groaned. But how does it work? I have no idea. I think it's an ultrasonic weapon, though, because the ultrasonic pistol knocked Dismal down and paralyzed him. Do you remember how he shook before he fell? 
Yeah, I got that. Sounds like a description of what happened to the people in the library, Scotty agreed. They'd been walking toward the drugstore Blythe had mentioned. As they reached the corner of K Street, Rick saw it diagonally across from them. It was the only one in sight, so he had to be the right one. The boys examined the building. It was ordinary-looking, with apartments and offices over a row of stores. They crossed the street and found the door to the right of the drugstore. It was set in a shallow entryway. There was a brass nameplate there that said, Dr. Miles Kepner. Rick looked for a doorbell, but there was none. Evidently, they were to go right up. He opened the door and walked up the narrow stairs, Scotty beside him. As he went, Rick thought he heard a buzzer sound from somewhere above. Evidently, there was a warning device, perhaps a button under one of the stair treads. As the door opened, a slender, scholarly man of middle age looked out. He motioned to the boys and spoke quietly. Come in, please. They went into the room that looked like a doctor's office. Rick noted the name on the window. Miles Kepner, M.D. He had to read it backwards, of course, because it was placed so that people on the street could read it. He wondered if the doctor had many patients. You have your cards? The boys produced them. The slender man examined them closely. Very well, boys. Come with me. He opened a door and led them into a completely equipped laboratory. Our shop, their guide said, smiling. Yours, too. I'm Dr. Keltner, by the way. Rick shook hands. I'm glad to meet you, sir. He looked around at the equipment. But I'm a little puzzled. I can't understand why Mr. I that is why anyone wanted Scotty and me down here when you could have trained people. I mean, golly, I, I don't know what we can do. Dr. Kempner chuckled. On the surface, I suppose it does seem odd. However, you and Scotty have worked with Weiss and Zircon for a long while. You realize, I'm sure, that an assistant is at his best when he has worked with the same man or men for a time. Besides, we know of your... Uh, well, uh, your ability with equipment. He went to a drawer and drew out a familiar object. Surely you haven't forgotten this. Rick took the air pistol that had caused so much anguish. He looked at it in wonder. No, sir, but how did it get here? Steve Ames brought it to me. It has helped immeasurably. We realized at once, you see, that the new weapon was an ultrasonic one. All the evidence pointed to it. The explosion of the clerk's hearing aid, the way the victims behaved, that was due to temporary damage to the inner ear, which is the seat of equilibrium. The damage caused a complete loss of balance. There were other factors, of course, but that seemed the most significant. We began experimenting with frequencies to determine which particular sounds could bring about the effect of the whispering weapon. It was a difficult job, because we could not be sure whether it was volume that did most of the damage or a single frequency. When you knocked Dismal over and paralyzed him, you gave us an important clue. Weiss and Zircon were to come here to continue their research, but they vanished, as you know. But what can we do now? Rick asked. You can help me and two experts who are due to arrive at any moment. I may say that we have discovered the exact method. The frequencies were measured at spin drift on your equipment there. An experiment was conducted that proved the theory. Professor Gordon was the victim. He volunteered, I might add. Very dangerous. We are working in a new field. The wrong frequency might have caused permanent crippling or even death. 
However, it turned out as expected. We can now reproduce the whispering weapon. Well, then that does it, Scotty said, except for finding out who's behind this. Not a bit, Kleppner said flatly. Our task has just begun. We must find a counterweapon, one so efficient it can be installed as a security measure in every government building, and it must be fully automatic so that the whispering weapon will set it off, nullifying the paralysis effect. You said we, Rick put in. You mean you and us? Partially, Kepner said, but we are not alone. We have the full backing and all the facilities of Yannig. <laughs> <laughs>